I'm Curtis James, and you're listening to Class Divide, a podcast about educational inequality. Like me, Carly Goldsmith grew up on one of the council estates of East Brighton on the south coast. It was a Saturday morning. I was in bed, in my bedroom. I heard my mum coming upstairs, and she came to my door, and she said, it looks like the letter's arrived. She hadn't opened it, so she didn't know what the outcome was. And I can remember feeling how significant that moment was in my life. She opened the letter and I read that I'd been awarded an assisted place. This is a story of how school opens up a world of opportunities to some, while others, born in the wrong postcode, are too often abandoned to the consequences of their poverty. The assisted placement that I got a place at a fee-paying independent school for girls, and my mum said something to the effect of, like, of course you got it. Like, you were never not going to get it. I remember being over the moon that she'd got into this school because I really didn't want... I didn't want any of them to go to state schools, really. Absolutely massive turning point. I mean, we'd have never been able to afford it, But because it was a scholarship, everything got paid for. We didn't have to pay anything, did we? Even for our uniform. Had we have had to pay for it, she would never have had that opportunity because we wouldn't have had the money. It was the first point at which I really realised that things were going to change. And I was doing something that was really very unknown to me. Episode 3 sliding doors. Carly is about to have a foot in two different worlds. She has a paid-for place at a local private school, while her brothers stay in the hills and the hollows of Whitehawk at the local comprehensive. In this episode, we're going to explore the stark reality of education segregation and what it means for the lives of young people in Britain. This series isn't about pitting private schools against state schools. Private versus state is where the biggest segregation is. But segregation exists within the state school system as well, which we'll be covering in later episodes. It's her first day at school, and Carly is about to enter a different world a million miles from the council estates of Whitehawk, Manor Farm and Bristol Estate. It had, like, what to me seemed like a really grand building and I'd never really been inside anywhere like that before. And when you walked into the front entrance, it was all, like, wooden floors and there were, you know, like, trophy cases with, like, cups in and then... On the walls, there were just pictures, like big whole school pictures of girls, you know, from previous years. I remember it to be very formal, very grand, quite old. It felt like there was a lot of history in that place. There was an atmosphere in there that I hadn't really been in before. Now, I understand it to be quite quite an academic 
kind of space. It was quite similar to what you can find in colleges or universities. Like, it was something completely outside of my experience. The parents kind of all looked a bit different. Everyone sounded very different. Everyone kind of had a different energy. It was a weird experience because I was in school suddenly with kids who went to Barbados for Christmas and had horses and had brothers in Brighton College and lived an an absolutely different kind of life to the one that I lived. What was interesting was they weren't even the really, really rich girls. Like, the really, really rich girls went to Rodine. But even their social and kind of financial situations were so far away from my life and my experience that it seemed huge to me. Rodine, along with Brighton College, are two of the UK's most expensive and prestigious fee-paying schools, and they're both a stone's throw from Whitehawk. The physical gap between the schools hasn't changed, but according to a report by the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the funding gap has. In 2009, the funding gap between state and private schools was 39%. In 2021, that gap had widened to 90%. Much of this has to do with ever-decreasing state school funding. When I was young, our secondary school had to sell our playing fields to Brighton College to raise money. It was my first real memory of the class divide, being taunted by boys from the private school for going to the council estate school as they walked from our old football pitches. That school was called Stanley Deason. It's where I went and all of Carly's brothers. We're with Asa. I'm... 39, um, I went to Stanley Decent. Ryan? I grew up in the Wild Estate. I went to Wild Junior School. Um, obviously then progressed to Stanley Decent. And Aaron? Uh, yeah, I used to live in Wild and I went to Stanley Decent. They're Carly's brothers. Ryan's memories reminded me of some of my time at school. A typical day for me at certain times was to get to school so my mum knew I was there and then I'd wander around the whole school all day long not challenged by anyone or any authority and I basically I was bunking off while still being at school. Their sister Carly has very different memories of school. We had relatively small class sizes. So in my maths class I think there were like 12 of us. So the class sizes in some lessons were much smaller. I studied subjects that I hadn't ever studied before. We did Latin as a language. I studied French and German. We didn't just have science. We had biology, physics and chemistry. I remember one time we uh, it was writ off at year nine for science. Um, we weren't going to get no grades. and We'd sit in a room every science lesson, double lesson, every day, every other day. And all we'd do is watch things like call run-ins and stuff like that. And, and that was it. That's two and a half years before your school year's end and you was already written off. Carly recounts a story about visiting to watch friends' brothers play rugby. And in that moment... Her mind drifts with a jolt to the lives of her brothers and friends back home. A friend of mine, like, her brother was at Brighton College and they would go and watch them, like, play rugby and stuff at the weekends. I remember I'd I'd gone on the bus past Brighton College, like, a gazillion times in my life. And I'd always just seen the outside of it and it looks really impressive. But when you walk through the arches and you see what it's like, it's like walking into a completely different world. And I remember thinking to myself, of course these people are going to do well. 
because everything around them tells them that they're going to do well. There's no failure here. You expect, if you go to a school like that, to have the power. You're entitled to to have the top jobs, to have the confidence, to have the connections, to have the mobility, to have all of those kinds of advantages. And then I saw my brothers and their friends, and my friends who were at Stanley. And, you know, there's no such... No such expectation, no such aspiration. We had a loft in the middle of the sea sea room and we put chairs, tables, all sorts up there. We used to go at lunch, go down a poorway, get a load of food, go back up there and sit up there. And that went on for months and months and months, you know, without no one even knowing anything. This couldn't have been a more different lunchtime experience to their sister Carly. Everyone was very orderly. It was about sitting and eating with a knife and fork in a very orderly space where everybody knew the rules. I loved lunchtimes because I like eating and the food was amazing. And because I was on free school meals, I could just eat what I wanted. It was like a proper buffet. (laughs) The food was incredible. Like I still remember how good the food was. Everyone else thought it was terrible, but I was amazed by it. We had a salad bar before salad bars were a thing. I mean, it was proper. I just went to school to have fun, really. (laughs) I didn't really want to learn, really. After the first bit of school, yeah, I I just messed around with my mates and stuff, really. I was even taking tiles off in the roof thing and climbing in the roof and just sitting up there smoking weed. Like I was even taking a bong to school and a bong mix and putting it in my bag, putting it in my locker at lunchtime. I was smoking a bong mix down the, down the bushes. There was also teachers who used to, uh, they would know you were bunking and to try and be your mate, they would let you run through their class to avoid another teacher and go on, get yourself through there. What the hell is that supposed to be? You're supposed to be there learning and, and, you, and you're getting away with doing all that, you know? Like, it's madness. In the end, it become it become normal, if you know what I mean. A lot of times, I, I could think that my mind was elsewhere. Do you know what I mean? I'm only looking back now, thinking, but why was my mind elsewhere? It could have been things that were going on back then. Sitting down with Carly and her brothers together at their old family home, Carly spoke about the downsides of going to the private school. My school was very serious and we were under a lot of pressure to perform and to do well academically. And I felt very much like I was the only person and I'd never travelled to that part of town and I'd never sort of gone anywhere really by myself. Like everything had been very much focused around the estate. So all my friends were on the estate. I didn't even have really other friends. Um, And so I remember feeling a lot quite jealous because it felt to me like over time what happened was my friendship groups kind of all carried on their relationships. So if they went to Stanley, they all carried on and having those relationships and they all did stuff out of school and they all kind of did that. And I saw you all have a very, very big friendship group that was really local. And I felt like I didn't really fit in lots of ways in the high school. So my friendship groups were quite small but they weren't people that, like I knew locally, they weren't local people. After my experience with the Brighton College kids in my teenage years, 
I couldn't help wondering what it was like for a council estate kid to be dropped into this very different world. Everybody was lovely to me at school. The teachers were, the, the, the girls were. Like, no one ever kind of singled me out because I was definitely the poorest kid in my year. I had a white walk accent, which got knocked out of me pretty quick. You know, bits of it kind of got softened. But I was aware that I was the token commoner. Like, you can't be in that situation and not know. Like, I always had the bad hair and I always had the bad skirt. They'd make you read things out in um, English and I'd always pronounce things wrong. But that stigma and perception we heard about in episode two, the one that made me soften my Whitehawk accent as well, it was lurking, ever-present. Carly noticed it when inviting friends from school to her house. People would actually say, you can't go to Carly's house. She can come here, yeah, but you can't go there. Yeah. So it was, it was weird. So I felt often like they were having more fun, like their friendships were deeper and longer lasting. And to some degree, I still feel like that now. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of isolated me in some ways from like the, friend, the friends I had. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can see you always say that. While Carly felt a sense of isolation at her new school, the brother's education was being hampered by a different issue. The endless, endless supply of teachers was ridiculous, you know? You, you had a new teacher every week in different classes. And... I just remember, like, there was so much disruption in the important years as well, with, with the teachers mainly. It was just so, so up and down with her. You never knew who was turning up, do you know what I mean? The issue with supply teachers is something ex-Stanny Deason drama teacher Dick Hubbard, who got me my only GCSE, remembers well. In the late days, the appearance of temporaries was a problem. I remember one summer, I can't remember which year it was, the head of maths had retired or gone, and they appointed a new head of maths. He appeared in September, but I never met him because he only lasted a day. And that kind of disruption arose because what should have been the targets of the school, which meant looking after these children, nurturing them, finding what their talents were, and they did have talents. Instead, we were constantly given, these are the targets we've got to meet, exam targets and Lord knows what targets, which were irrelevant for those kids. Meanwhile, on the other side of town... The one thing about all of the teachers were they were genuinely subject experts. And the expectation was that we were all there to learn. And so everything we did was set up for us to learn. And there was also an expectation that there would be no disruption in classes, there would be no behaviour management issues actually everyone was there for a kind of common purpose and that was to to listen to our teachers to learn from our teachers to study hard and to do well and to progress that was what the environment was like and that was what the culture was like the fact that we were girls was just neither here nor there you know, we were going to be successful people i do not have a single memory of a single lesson in school where anyone ever got asked to leave I do not have a single memory in school of any of the girls being told off for behaving badly. That might have been the case for Carly, but her brothers and many people I've spoken to since leaving school have memories of a room they often ended up in. It was a room some pupils would be isolated in. It might be called a behaviour hub now. 
it was the kind of place people like me when I was misbehaving would have spent quite a lot of time in. You could sit in there for days. You can't get on your... misbehaved, if you're late. I was in there most days, but, but I just, they used to just lock us in there and we used to just do lines. Looking back with a bit of hindsight, why do you think they kept putting you in that room? I don't think it's easier for their job, isn't it? You know, just get rid of him quick, stick him in there, and then we'll crack on. I think it was just easier for them, really, sometimes, than having to deal with it properly. Did you ever wonder? Why aren't they sort of maybe giving me some other support? Like, just putting me in a room seems like it's not helping. I don't know, I think I was probably too young at that time to really think along them lines of, you know, why are they doing this? It was just, you know, off you go, sort of thing. I don't really... Yeah. Well, I think they just created more playing up, didn't it? Really, in the end. Did you always get locked in? I mean, was it... Because I can't remember being locked in there. If there was a teacher not there, you would be locked in there, yeah. yeah. I think by, like, year nine and that, they'd totally given up on you, wouldn't they? Since me and Carly's brothers went to school, the way behaviour is managed in schools has changed quite a bit. The room we used to be put in feels like a pretty informal affair compared to behaviour strategies today. Professor Diane Ray is a Cambridge academic researcher and higher education teacher. She comes from a working class background and grew up on a large council estate. Her book, Miseducation, explores the relationship between class and education. First, she told me about behaviour management in some MATS, or multi-academy trusts. So there's shocking current stats on that. Something like 68% of all the larger MATS have isolation booths and behaviour hubs. I think that removal of children and sitting them, often looking at a blank wall, is education as cruelty. I think we're particularly bad in England, actually, at respecting children's rights, and particularly poor children's rights. There's virtually no respect for poor children's human rights in our educational system anymore. It's a pragmatic response to the fact that they don't have the resources or the training often to deal with these children and their educational needs. It's about the failure of our education system that we're having to dump these children into what are called behaviour hubs, but are really isolation units. It's shocking, and, and I, think, I think it's a human rights issue. For my eels, I follow on Twitter what often feels like warring factions on the different ways to deal with behaviour in schools. On one side are those that expect perfect behaviour or else, and on the other, what feels like a more nuanced approach. I'm definitely no expert on behaviour in schools and I can only speak to my experience as a student and now observer. But when I'm listening to the stories ex and current students tell me, the thing that often seems missing is an acceptance or understanding of the impact a student's home life has on their behaviour. Debates will continue to rage about how to deal with behaviour issues. My opinion is that segregating young people who are dealing with all kinds of trauma it's just the most expedient way to make school work in a creaking and underfunded education system. As we're hearing in this episode, the gap between private and state schools is huge, but there's another gap, 
It sits between schools that prioritise school-ready ideal learners to stay high up in the league tables, and the places all the other kids end up in, the ones that didn't have the early years support, learn in different ways, or struggle because of home issues. Let's head back to Carly's family home. I remember looking after you quite a bit. Yeah, I can imagine. You felt more like my children than my brothers, <laughs> in a way. Not well, that you... That's the perception we had in the end. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's sort of, uh, it, because of the way things went and stuff. Yeah. I Not that you were. No, no, and... but that's how it sort of felt, no, we just sort of looked at you more as a mum than a big sister, wasn't it, really? Yeah. I'm not so... saying that mum weren't... No, no, I'm just course. saying that look, that's the way it sort of went, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mum was, you know, did all the mum things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I did... So I feel like... Often our relationship wasn't one as of siblings, yeah, really. Yeah, it yeah. was one of like semi-parent. Yeah, and I was have been eleven or twelve then, so I looked after you from from quite a young age. Yeah. Even before I went to secondary school, I used to look after you a lot. Yeah. Um, but mum worked long hours, and you know, I remember yeah, when she was in Kentucky, and we'd wait for our dinner at eleven o'clock. Literally, I know. How many Kentucky Fried Chickens did we eat? I, I remember like being really excited. I sort of remember we, we had one chair. I think for, for, so I always we did. That's a young, we had one chair and one little black coffee table, didn't we? In the living room, yeah. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah, and cement floors when oh, yeah, we moved in there. Floors, yeah. yeah, when we uh, moved in there. Wait that bucket of chicken to get whacked on the table. Literally. All scavengers at it. Yeah, I remember that. I do remember that. Mm. I'm not suggesting home and life challenges are ignored by schools completely. It feels more as if there's a lack of capacity in schools to give extra support and maybe a lack of lived experience of poverty and difficult health challenges by some in the teaching profession. It also raises the question, should schools be responsible for social issues or are they just there to teach? Here's Ryan again. A lot of people had a bad home life, bad stuff, lots of bad stuff. It wasn't really checked. I mean, you could stay off school and no one would even bring home. So you could come home from school and your mum wouldn't even know you weren't there. When you look back, it was a little bit mad, you know? Here's Aaron. In the early days, my old man was a bit of a drinker. 100% would have had an effect. You know what I mean? Many things went on when we were kids with the old man. He'd give up years ago, like, once he got the old man, but it definitely affected probably... You don't think it, but, but it obviously did, you know what I mean? This really connects to my childhood. No one at the school knew what was going on in my home life with my mum, and if they did, they didn't seem to offer much support. I didn't have that, but I had my, my mum had loads of mental health problems, and at the time, I just didn't even consider it was affecting my education. But now looking back, I, I definitely know that I missed loads of school because of that. You know, I just didn't, yeah, I wasn't focused on, on school at all. So it's those outside sort of influences can have quite a big impact. I've had some difficult times at home. Obviously, my dad was an alcoholic, so it was hard. And then, obviously, sometimes it was sort of like get to get away from that. I went to school because most of the time I wouldn't even bother going to school, to be honest, in the end. I have first-hand experience of how generational challenges are passed down. One of my nans was born into a big family, so big, in fact, that they couldn't afford to look after all of their children. She and one of her brothers were sent to Warren Farm on a remote hill on the outskirts of Brighton. It was known as a school for paupers and was part of the workhouse system. They were split from their family into what I can only imagine was a tough, loveless environment. And when I think about my mum's mental health issues, it's hard not to connect what happened with my nan, her mum, to the challenges she faced in my childhood, and I'd be silly not to accept some of that was handed down to me. 
can still remember having vivid dreams of the same nightmares every night. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Trying to get out of the four bedroom that we were in, and that's <laughs> you're in now. Yeah. Everything in slow motion, trying to crawl down the stairs. If you're looking for help, I know there was always people downstairs, weren't there? Yeah, always. But no one would ever come. <laughs> <laughs> It's all nightmares when I can remember as a kid, do you know what I mean? There are a multitude of reasons children grow up in homes that need extra support, like Carly, Ryan, Aaron and Asa, and a load of my other friends I went to school with. At the time, everything felt so normal. It's only in my adult life I look back and see me and my twin brother as young carers through some of our teenage years. I'm not sure the school looked into why my mind might have been elsewhere, or why I wasn't doing my homework, meaning I got into a lot of trouble. It's not too extreme to say there were times I was trying to keep my mum from having a breakdown, and I'll bet you there are thousands of children dealing with this, and much worse, right now. So, we've got children dealing with heavy life stuff, definitely not fitting into the category of ideal learners and we have a school system with very little capacity to support those children with their learning, while at the same time, education ministers are drawing up plans to send capacity checkers into secondary schools to see if they can fit even more pupils into classrooms. That's very different to those class sizes of 12 that Carly was experiencing at her private school. All of this adds up to an ugly picture if you come from a working-class family, Professor Diane Ray told me about one multi-academy trust with schools in predominantly poor areas where 48% of its pupils have spent time in an isolation booth, just like the room for naughty kids at Stanley Deason. I think just as appalling is a very strong educational programme currently of disciplining and controlling working-class children with within education. It's particularly endemic in the academy schools. There's an academy in central England where children have to parrot, silence is my natural state. Silence is my natural state. Before they go into the classroom. And then when they're in the classroom, they are supposed to sit and constantly keep their eyes to the front of the classroom, keep their eyes on the teacher and only speak when invited to by the teacher. This is yet again, <laughs> education is cruelty. There's um, a very strong behavioural programme called Teach Like a Champion, which I'm afraid I've sometimes called Teach Like a Champion, Learn Like a Slave, because... It's all about total control of the pupil and not allowing them to express any of their own ideas or creativity, but just to fit in with the discipline requirements of the staff and the, and the school. It's not about education, it's, a, it's about control. Darren McGarvey, author of Poverty Safari and more recently The Social Distance Between Us, knows where this lack of support with trauma-based behaviour can lead. These kids were violently assaulted uh, under corporal punishment and then uh, when that was outlawed very, very recently, they get suspended, excluded. 
that's when they start to show up on the local police radar. That's when police involvement then eventually turns to criminal justice system. And it's all because usually a teacher has to make a tough ethical decision. Do I spend my time trying to form a relationship with this troubled young person at the expense of these 28 other young people who are here and behaving relatively well? And that's a difficult choice that a teacher shouldn't have to make. Here's my old drama teacher, Dick Hubbard, again. I would describe the staff of standardisation as falling into two groups. But one were the people who had some respect for the children that they were dealing with, and the others who regarded them as something that was so horrendous that punishment was really the only kind of thing that they understood, which was a load of nonsense. I remember there was a famous occasion when one particular teacher, and that's uh, Metcalf, who wanted to bring back the cane, and there was a huge debate. This was quite early on in the school. And I, along with many others, said, you know, that's desperately wrong. The name Metcalf still strikes a bit of fear in me when I hear it, over 35 years since our paths would have crossed. I remember lessons with other teachers and him coming in to dish out some discipline. To be honest, it wasn't very conducive to a positive learning experience. I just felt scared half the time. And the other side of it was this whole notion of respecting these people as individuals. Some of them had horrendous backgrounds, some didn't. Most of them were in a deprived area. They didn't have high motivation in educational terms. So that's something we had to encourage and try and develop what they had got. The teachers who were consistently successful, and I don't necessarily mean in getting examination results, but in their relationships with their pupils, were those who had some respect for them. Miss Rose, she was my year head for a while. She used to come to me and say to me that if I knuckled down, I could, I, I never listened, I, I, could get, I could get good grades. Mr Russell used to try and talk about other things that were going on in my life and stuff. Our PE teacher, Mr Field, he was another good teacher. He just listened, he was always, it was like he was your friend as well as a teacher, like, he, he always had time for you, like, he was our football manager and that as well, so he was, he was always around him, I was captain of the football team and he'd always try with us, so yeah, that was what was different about it. And he'd, he'd sort of take what we said to him on board instead of just going in one ear and out the other like the rest of them. Mr. Field used to do it through niceness, you know. Was another one there, Miss Ettinger, when she came in as a drama teacher. She changed that a lot, the school and the drama and all that. I mean, you'd never have got us doing anything. By the end of it, she had us doing plays. And, you know, so there was some tryers there, but it was uh, the, the majority of them. It was all rough, rough tactics and detention and gas stabbing your head against the wall for an hour. You no, know, that sort of stuff, you know. It's like, it's, uh, it was a bit yeah, mental when you look at it all now. Towards the end of school, in the last couple of years, whilst I was doing my GCSEs, I'd find every opportunity to get out of English and maths and just hang out in the darkroom, drama hall or music room. I'd be teaching myself how to wire plugs, set up lighting and manage stage stuff. I'd be playing with synthesizers and learning how to use multi-track recorders. And I'd spend hours learning how to develop and print black and white films. That stuff felt much more important to me but I'd often get into trouble for it. 
I remember there was a time when my English teacher came looking for me, and I think I was in the drama hall tinkering with some lighting. She had an argument with my drama teacher because he was turning a blind eye to it. So Kevin Hayter brought music out of you, I brought drama out of you, hopefully other teachers nearly brought other things out of you. Looking for ways to help children's self-esteem is probably the root of what it ought to have been around. But so often it was not about looking after the children, but controlling. And it's a, as if somehow controlling was, again, it was basically a punitive system. Keep them down. Don't let them get ahead of you. And if you set up a, a system which is based on an assumption of division, don't be surprised if that division comes up and bites you. Home challenges, punitive behavioural systems, generational challenges, stigma, all of these things were and still are stacked up against children from places like Whitehawk. And as if it couldn't get any worse, on top of that, there were also very low expectations from some teachers. Here's Dick Hubbard talking about an exchange in the school staff room at Stanley Deason. I always remember being in the staff room quite late in the day, probably 98, something like that. And this young woman was in the staff room, an old pupil, and I was talking to her. And one of the newer staff said, oh, you know, who is that? I said, it's, it's an ex-pupil. Oh, what's she doing? I said, she works at Worthing Hospital. He said, oh, fantastic, is she a nurse? I said, no, she's a, actually a medical registrar. <laughs> she's a senior doctor. And he was astonished. And I said, you know, you forget, we have children here who do achieve. We don't always see it because they go on to sixth form college. I said, oh, they achieve in other ways. And funnily enough, one of the people I was thinking of at that time was you and your brother. Because I knew what you got up to after you left school. And I thought, great, you've achieved. You've achieved in areas where, you know, you had expertise, which was not recognised or nurtured in the school. I was really lucky to have Mr Hubbard and a couple of other supportive teachers because the culture of low expectations at schools like Stanley Deason can cast a long shadow on a person's life. I just basically accepted that I wasn't going to get a top job. I accepted that whatever job I had to do, I had to do. I think most people I knew at that school, and I knew the half, the, most of the school, I think there was two people in my year that we thought would get decent jobs, but the rest of us, we were just, we just accepted that very early in senior school, that we'd have to just, we'd have to be them, take them lesser jobs. And maybe we did think we were lesser people. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, when it put it like that. I didn't have that experience at school, and I can't even begin to imagine what it must do to a person, to a child, to feel that. Honestly, Curtis, it's, it, I can't quite communicate enough how extraordinarily different everything was whether it was the atmosphere in the school, whether it was the expectation of the school and then the expectations of the teachers, whether it was just this absolute certainty that we would all do very well, that we could go on to have successful lives, 
in jobs that were high status, high paid, secure, that we would recreate the very middle class or upper middle class lives of the parents of the girls that were there. Like that was just what would happen. Everyone would do that, right? There was no question. There was no uncertainty. There was no notion that anyone could fail. Did you get to the point where you did your exams? Or was, was that not I even... only done two, I think. I only done two. I just didn't go to the rest. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And what was that like? Like what, like, what was the experience like? At the time, I didn't really give a shit, but, but now, when I look back, I wish I did. I could have changed and knuckled down, but you don't really only get one chance, don't you? And I, was, I had so much going on at home, and then like, it, was, it was difficult to adjust and just go and knuckle down. I just had to... I thought that was my way of letting it all out. I thought that was my way of getting out what was going at home and just fucking around and smashing things up was my way of getting it out, you know. I asked Aaron how his exams went. I think, I, I basically, I think I got three A to C's and the rest were D's and E's. I had to go back and reset English, science and maths to go to college, which... I really didn't want to do, which I didn't do in the end. I think I lasted two weeks at college and I think I didn't even get off the bus. I think I got off the bus once to actually go, do you know what I mean? And and that was it. I said to my mother, I'm, I can't, I, that's just not me. I'm not resitting my stuff. I need to do something else, do you know what I mean? Anissa had a similar experience to me. My memories of getting my results are of my yearhead marching down the corridor in the school and him saying, I knew you'd never amount to anything, or words to that effect. To be honest, I don't even know why I went in to collect them, which is how Asa felt. I didn't even get them. I didn't even go and get them. I just, I got sent to me. I just binned them. I didn't even bother. I won't bother. The only, the only lesson I was ever really bothered about was PE. I, I didn't really give, didn't care about the rest. Oh, God. I oh, I'm not going to cry. Honestly, Curtis, it breaks my heart. Still. I think because my brothers are really bright, intelligent, clever, with so much potential. They're funny and they're kind. They're all kinds of other things as well. You know, my brothers, they're annoying and all the rest of it. It's a physical feeling. And this is what people don't understand. Like, the injustice of it makes my blood boil. It just makes me so angry. This is the story of a family in the same house, in the same community. They went to schools with just a few miles between them, but the educational outcomes were worlds apart. Later on in the series, we'll be returning to Carly, Aaron, Asa and Ryan to find out what happened to them after school. But in the next episode... We're going to be looking at how the school us boys went to came to be known as the school that died of poverty. Core episodes will be released every other week, and on the weeks in between, I'll be getting together with Carly Goldsmith to talk about some of the things that came up in the most recent episode. So make sure you're subscribed on your podcast app to access that. And if you're about to hit that subscribe button, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps spread the word.
Class Divide was written and produced by me, Curtis James. The executive producer is Eve Streeter. Location recording, sound design, post-production and mixing is by Simon James, with editorial support by Carly Goldsmith. Music in this episode was kindly donated by Salvatore Mercatante, Trams, Shida Shahibi, Max de Wardner, Simon James, Clarice Jensen, Polly Paws, Toy Drum and The Official Body. The series was funded by necessity, and if you'd like to support the Class Divide campaign, follow at Divide Class on Twitter and Instagram, or visit the website classdivide.co.uk. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's taken part. This series couldn't have happened without many people putting their trust in me to tell these important stories. There are also people who shared their stories with me and whose voices haven't ended up in the series. Many of the things those people share with me are definitely here as ideas and inspiration. I also need to thank the Crew Club, Daniel Nathan, Alex at Fat Cat Records, Colin at Castles in Space and Jimmy Berlianto for their help and support. Please help spread the word by subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review. Until next time, I'll see you next week. <laughs>